Chapter Ten of the Jesus of History by T. R. Glover. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Ten Jesus in Christian Thought. Jesus Christ came to men as a great new experience. He took them far outside all they had known of God and of man. He led them, historically, into what was, in truth, a new world, into a new understanding of life in all its relations. What they had never noticed before, he brought to their knowledge, he made interesting to them, and intelligible. In short, as Paul put it, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The aspects of things were different, the values were changed, and a new perspective made clear relations that were obscure and tangled before. Why should it have been so? Why should it be that, when a man comes into contact, into some kind of sympathy with Jesus Christ, some living union with him, everything becomes new, and he, by and by, begins to feel with St. Paul, to me to live is Christ. Why has Jesus meant so much? Why should all this be associated with him? Plato, in the sentence already quoted, tells us that the unexamined life is unlivable for a human being, for a real man. Here, then, came into man's life a new experience altogether, like nothing known before, altering everything, giving new sympathies, new passions, new enthusiasms a new attitude to God, and a new attitude to man. It was inevitable that thought must work upon it. Who was this Jesus that he should produce this result? Men asked themselves that very early, and if they were slow to do so, the criticism of the outsider drove them into it. The result has been nineteen centuries of endless question and speculation as to Jesus Christ. The rise of dogma, creed, and formula, as slowly all the philosophy of mankind has been rethought in the light of the central experience of Jesus Christ. In spite of all that we may regret in the war of creeds, it was inevitable, it was part of the disturbance that Jesus foresaw he must make. Men could do no other. They had to determine for themselves the significance of Jesus in the real world, in the whole cosmos of God, and it meant fruitful conflict of opinion, the growth of the human mind, and an ever-heightened emphasis on Jesus. An analogy may illustrate in some way the story before us. One of the most fascinating chapters of geography is the early exploration of America. Chesapeake Bay was missed by one explorer. Fog or darkness may have been the cause of his missing the place, but he missed it. And though it is undoubtedly there, he made his map without it. Now let us suppose a similar case, for it must often have happened in early days, and this time we will say it was the Hudson or some river of that magnitude. A later explorer came and where the map showed a shore without a break, he found a huge inlet or outlet. Was it the arm of the sea? 
a vast bay, or was it a great river? A very great deal depended on which it was, and the first thing was to determine that. There were several ways of doing it. One was to sail up and map the course. A quicker way was to drop a bucket over the side of the ship. The bucket, we may be sure, went down, and it came up with fresh water, and the water was an instant revelation of several new and important facts. They had discovered, first of all, that where there was an unbroken coastline on the map, there was nothing of the kind in reality. There was a broad waterway up into the country. And this was not a bay, but the mouth of a river, and a very great river indeed. And this implied yet another discovery, that men had to reckon with no mere island or narrow peninsula, but an immense continent where it remained to explore. Jesus Christ was, in himself, a very great discovery for those to whom he gave himself, and the exploration of him shows a somewhat similar story. Men have often said that they see nothing in him very different from the rest of us, while others have found in him, in the phrase of the Apocalypse, the water of life. And the positive announcement is here, as in the other case, the more important of the two. The discovery of the volume of life which comes from Jesus Christ is one of the greatest that men have made. Merely to have dipped his bucket, as it were, in that great stream of life has again and again meant everything to a man. Think what the new-found river of the new world meant to some of those early explorers after weeks at sea. Water, water everywhere, nor any drop to drink, and they reach an immense flood of river water. It was new life at once, but it did not necessarily mean the immediate exploration of everything, the instant completion of geographical discovery. It was life, and the promise of more to follow. The history of the church is a record, we may put it, both of the discovery of the river of life, and of the exploration of its course and its sources and what lies beyond it. But the discovery and the exploration are different things, and the first is quicker and more certain than the second. Most of us will admit that we have not gone very far up into that continent. The object of this chapter is not to attempt to survey or compendiarize Christian exploration of Jesus, but to try to find for ourselves a new approach to an estimate of the historical figure who has been, and remains, the centre of everything. We may classify the records of the Christian exploration roughly in three groups. In the early Christian centuries, we find endless thought given to the philosophical study of the relation of Christ and God. It fills the library of the early church, and practically all the early controversies turn upon it. The weak spot in all this was the use of the a priori method. Men started with preconceptions about God, not unnaturally, for we all have some theories about God which we are apt to regard as knowledge. But knowledge is a difficult thing to reach in any sphere of study, and men assumed too quickly that they had attained a sound philosophical account of God. They overestimated their actual knowledge of God, 
and did not recognize to the full the importance of their new expertise. This may seem ungenerous to men who gave life and everything for Jesus Christ, and to whose devotion, to whose love of Jesus, we owe it that we know him, an ungenerous criticism of their brave thinking, and their independent in a hundred ways of old tradition. Still, it is true that the weakness of much of their Christology, and of ours, is that it starts with a borrowed notion of God, which really has very little to do with the Christian religion. To this we shall return, but in the meantime we may note that here as elsewhere preconceptions have to be lightly held by the serious student. Huxley once wrote to Charles Kingsley, Science seems to me to teach in the highest and strongest manner the great truth that is embodied in the Christian conception of entire surrender to the will of God. Sit down before the fact as a little child. Be prepared to give up every preconceived notion. Follow humbly, wherever and to whatever end nature leads, or you shall learn nothing. I have only begun to learn content and peace of mind since I have resolved, at all risks, to do this. So Huxley wrote about the study of natural science. In this great inquiry of ours, we have to learn to be patient enough, we might say ignorant enough, to do the same. The early church had a faith in Greek philosophy, which stood in its way, brave and splendid as its thinkers were. Our second group is represented roughly by the hymn-book. The evidential value of a good hymn-book will stand investigation. Of course, a great many hymns are mere copies and poor copies, but the hymn-book at its best is a collection of first-hand records of experience. In the story of the Christian Church, doxology comes before dogma. When the writer of the Apocalypse breaks out at the very beginning, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins, in his own blood, be glory and dominion for ever and ever, he is recording a great experience and his doxology leads him on to an explanation of what he has felt and known, to an intellectual judgment and an appreciation of Christ. The order is experience, happiness and song, and then reflection. The love and the cleansing, and the joy, supply the materials on which thought has to work. We always have to remember that thought does not strictly supply its own material, however much it may help us to find it. Philosophy and theology do not give us our facts. Their function is to group and interpret them. Our third group of records is given to us by the men of the Reformation. We have there two great movements side by side. There is Bible translation, which means, in plain language, a decision or conviction on the part of scholars and thinkers that the knowledge of the historical Jesus and of men's first experiences of him is of the highest importance in the Christian life. The whole Reformation follows, or runs parallel with, that movement. It is essentially a new exploration of what Jesus Christ can do and of what he can be. In dealing with all these three groups of records, 
we have to note the seriousness of the men who made the experiments, their energy of mind, their determination to reach real facts, and in Cromwell's great phrase, to speak things. They will have the truth of the matter, intricate and entangled as the history, for instance, of the Aryan controversy, that controversy which turned under diphthong, as Carlyle said in his younger days. It represented more than mere logomachy, as Carlyle saw later on. It followed on from a determination to get at the real fact of who and what Jesus Christ is, and the two words that differed by a diphthong embodied diametrically opposite conceptions of him, with all the super-subtlety that sometimes characterises theologians, these men had a passion for truth. It led them into paths where our minds find a difficulty in following. But the motive was the imperative sense that thinking men must examine and understand their supreme experience. A motive that must weigh with men who are in earnest about life. The great hymns of the church such as the Dies Irae of Thomas of Salado, or Bernard's Jesu Dulcis Memoria, or Toplady's Rock of Ages, are transcripts from life, made by deep-going and serious minds. The writers are recording, with deep conviction of its worth, what they have discovered in experience. A man who takes Christ seriously, and will examine life, will often find in these great hymns, it may be with some surprise, an anticipation of his own experience, as Bunyan did in Luther's commentary on Galatians. Livingstone had Jesu Dulcis Memoria, the Latin of it, ringing in his head as he travelled in unexplored Africa. Men who did such work, work that lasts and is recognised again and again to be genuine by others busy in the same field, cannot have been random light-hearted creatures. They were, in fact, men tested in life, men of experience, of wide and deep experience, men with a gift for living, developed in heart as well as in brain. The finest of Greek critics, Longinus, said that the great style is an echo of a great soul. Neander said, and it is again and again true, that it is the heart that makes the theologian. Where we find a great hymn or a great theology, we may be sure of finding a great nature and a great experience behind it. Let us sum up our general results so far. First of all, whatever be the worth of the consensus of Christian opinion, and we have to decide how much it is worth, bearing in mind the type of man who has worked, and suffered to make it in every age. And, I think, it runs high as the work of serious and explorative minds. The consensus of Christian opinion gives the very highest name to Jesus Christ. Men who did not begin with any preconception in his favour, and who have often had a great deal of difficulty in explaining to others, and perhaps to themselves, the course by which they have reached their conclusions, claim the utmost for Jesus, and this in spite of the most desperate philosophical difficulties about monotheism. 
with a strong sense of fact, with a deepening feeling for reality, with a growing value for experience, and with bolder ventures upon experience, men have found that their conception of Jesus deepens and grows. He means more to them the more they are. And, as was noted in the first chapter, in a rational universe where truth counts and error fails, the Church has risen in power with every real emphasis laid on Jesus Christ. What does this involve? So far our records. Today we are living in an era when great scientific discoveries are made and more are promised. Geology once unsettled people about Genesis, but closer study of the Bible and of science has given truer views of both, and thinking people are as little troubled about geology now as about Copernican astronomy. At present, heredity and psychology are dominating our minds, or rather theories as to both, for though beginnings have been made, the stage has not yet been reached of very wide or certain discovery. There is still a great deal of the soul unexplored and unmapped. No reasonable person would wish to belittle the study, either of evolution or of psychology, but the real men of science would probably urge that lay people should take more pains to know the exact meaning and scope of scientific terms, and to have some more or less clear idea in their minds when they use them. However, all these modern discoveries and theories are, to many men's minds, a challenge to the right of Christians to speak of Jesus Christ as they have spoken of him, a challenge to our right to represent the facts of Christian life as we have represented them. In other words, they are a challenge to us to return to experience and to see what we really mean. If our study of Jesus in the preceding chapters has been on sound lines, we shall feel that the challenge to face facts is in his vein. It was what he urged upon men throughout. The old problem returns upon us. Who and what is this Jesus Christ? We are involved in the recurrent need to re-examine him and re-explore him. There are several ways of doing so. Like every other historical character, Jesus is to be known by what he does rather than by a priori speculation as to what he might be. In the study of history, the first thing is to know our original documents. There are the Gospels, and, like other historical records, they must be studied in earnest on scientific lines, without preconception. And there are later records which tell us as plainly and truthfully of what he has done in the world's history. We can begin, then, with the serious study of the actual historical Jesus, whom people met in the road, and with whom they ate their meals, whom the soldiers nailed to the cross, and whom his disciples took to worshipping, and who has, historically, recreated the world. The second line of approach is rather more difficult, but with care we can use Christological theories to recover the facts which those who framed the theories intended to explain. We must remember here, once more, the three historical canons laid down at the beginning. We must, above all things, 
give the man's term his meaning and ask what was the experience behind his thought when we come upon such descriptions of jesus as christ our passover or find him called the messiah we must not let our own preconceptions as to the value of the theories implied by the use of such language nor again our existing views of what is orthodox determine our conclusions but we must ask what those who so explained jesus really meant to say and what they had experienced which they thought worth expressing these people as we see were face to face with a very great new experience and they cast about for some means of describing and explaining it a slight illustration may suggest the natural law in accordance with which they set about their task of explanation a child of between two and three years old was watching his first snowstorm gazing very intently at the flying snowflake and evidently trying to think out what they were at last he hit it they were little birds it is so that the mind infant or adult is apt to work explaining the new and unknown by reference to the familiar snowflakes are not little birds they are something quite different and yet there is a common element they both go flying through the air and it was that fact that the child's brain noticed and used to explain jesus his friends and contemporaries spoke of him as the logos the sacrifice christ our passover the messiah and so forth of those terms not one is intelligible to us today without a commentary to ordinary people jesus is at once intelligible far more so than the explanations of him historically it is he himself who has antiquated every one of those conceptions and so far as they have survived it has been in virtue of association with him they are the familiar language of another day no one said dr rendell harris can sing how sweet the name of logos sounds synesius of cyrene did try to sing it but most human beings prefer st bernard or john newton the inner significance of each term will point to the real experience of the man using it he employs a metaphor a simile or a technical term to explain something can we penetrate the analogy which he finds between the jesus of the new experience and the old term which he uses can we when we see what he has experienced grasp the substance and build on that to the neglect of the term when we look at the terms we find that the essence of sacrifice was reconciliation between god and man we shall return to this a little later and that the messiah was understood to be destined to achieve god's purpose and god's meaning for mankind and for each man we find again that the inner meaning of the logos is that through it and in it god and man come in touch with each other and become mutually intelligible reconciliation the victory of god the mutual intelligibility of god and man all three terms centre into one great thought a new union between god 
and man. That, so far as I can see, is the common element, and that is, as men have conceived it, the very heart of the Christian experience. In the third place, we can utilise the new experiments made upon Jesus Christ in the Reformation and in other revivals. They come nearer to us, for the men who report are more practical and more scholarly in the modern way. They are more akin to us both in blood and in ideas. Luther, for example, is a great spirit of the explorer type. He went to scholarship and learnt the true meaning of metanoia, that it was rethinking and not penance, and he grasped a new view of God there. From scholarship he gained a truer view of church history than he had been taught, and this, too, helped to clear his mind. Above all, as a great son of fact, Carlyle's name for him, his chief interest was the exploration of Jesus Christ. Would Christ stand all the weight that a man could throw upon him without assistance? And Luther found that Christ could, and he at once turned his knowledge into action, as the world knows. Justification by faith was his phrase, and he meant that we may trust Jesus Christ with all that we are, all that we have been, and all that we hope to be that Jesus himself will carry all, that Jesus himself is all, that Jesus is at once Luther's eternal salvation and his sure help in the next day's difficulty, his saviour forever from sin and his great standby in translating the Bible for the German people and in writing hymns for boys and girls. Nos nihil sumus, he wrote, Christus solus et omnia. In the case of every great revival, the Wesleyan revival, and the smaller ones in the United States, in the north of Ireland, in Wales, in every one we find that, where anything is really achieved, it is done by a new and thoroughgoing emphasis on Jesus Christ. It may be put in language which to some years is repulsive, in metaphors strange or uncouth, but whatever the language, the fact that underlies it is this. Men are brought back to the reality, the presence, the power, and the friendship of Jesus Christ. They are called to a fresh venture on Jesus Christ, a fresh exploration, and again and again the experience of a lifetime has justified the venture. This brings us to the most effective and fundamental method in the exploration of Jesus, in some ways the most difficult of all, or else the very simplest. The Church has been clear that there is nothing like personal experiment, the personal venture. It is the only clue to the experience. The saying of St. Augustine Immo credo ut intelligas is to many of our minds offensive, I think because we do not give quite the right meaning to his credo. But, if the illustrations are not too simple, swimming and bicycling offer parallels. A man will never understand how water holds up a human body as long as he stays on dry land. 
in practical things the venture comes first and it is hard to see how a man is to understand christ without a personal experience of him all parents know how much better bachelors and maiden sisters understand children than they do but as soon as these great authorities have children of their own the position is altered a little the change that jesus definitely operates in men they have described in various ways rebirth salvation a new heart and so forth what they have always emphasized in jesus christ is that they find he changes their outlook and develops new instincts in them and that in one way and another he saves from sin and they have been men who have learnt and adopted jesus's own estimate of sin when then we remember that with his serious view of sin he undertook men's redemption from it when we add to this some real reflection upon how much he already has done as plain matter of history to take away the sin of the world we surely have something to go upon in our attempt to determine who he is the question will rise have christians overstated their experience or even misunderstood it has forgiveness been in fact achieved or salvation from sin can sin be put away at all what will the evidence for this be i do not know what the evidence could be except the new life of peace with god and all the sunshine and blessing that go with it this new life is at all events all the evidence available and how much it means is very difficult to estimate without some personal experience here again the great theories of redemption will help us to recover the experience they are to explain and once more we may note that they are not the work of small minds or trivial natures however badly they have been echoed substitution implies at any rate some serious confession of guilt before god some strong sense of a great indebtedness to christ the theory of sacrifice implies the need of reunion with god robertson smith in his early religion of the semites brings out that the essence of ancient sacrifice was that the tribe the sacrificial beast and the god were all of one blood the god was supposed to be alienated the sacrifice was offered by the party to the quarrel who was seeking reconciliation namely the tribe when we look at the new testament we find that the emphasis always lies on god seeking reconciliation with man the theory of ransom a most moving term in the world of slavery implies the need of new freedom for the mind for the heart and for the whole nature from the tyranny of sin all these are similes and tremendous structures of theory have been built on every one of them and for some of these structures simile or in plainer language analogy is not a sufficient foundation it is probably true that all our current explanations of the work of christ in redemption have in them too large an element of metaphor and simile yet christian people are reluctant to discard any one of them and their reluctance is intelligible there is a value in the old association which is found by new experience every one of these old similes 
will contribute to our realization of the work of christ in so far as it is a record of experience of christ verified in one generation after another we shall make the best use of them when we are no longer intimidated by the terminology but go at once to what is meant to the facts we come still closer to the facts in the less metaphorical terms of the new testament for example there is the new covenant the writer of the epistle to the hebrews went back to a great phrase in jeremiah and by his emphasis on it he helped to give its name to the whole new testament i will make a new covenant with the house of israel and the house of judah using this passage he brings out that there is a new relation a new union between god and man in jesus he speaks of jesus as a mediator bringing man and god together language far plainer to us than the terminology of sacrifice which he employed rather to bring home the work of jesus with feeling and passion to those who had no other vocabulary than to impose upon christian thinkers a scheme of things which he clearly saw to be exhausted then there is paul's great conception of reconciliation half the difficulties connected with the word atonement disappear when we grasp that the word in greek means primarily reconciliation as paul uses the noun and the verb it is very plain what he means god is in christ trying to reconcile the world to himself these attempts to express christ's work in plain words take us back to the great central christian experience to the great initial discovery that the discord of man's making between god and man has been removed by god's overtures in christ that the obstacles which man has felt in his approach to god in the unclean hands and the unclean lips have been taken away and that with a heart such as the human heart is a man may yet come to god in jesus because of jesus through jesus the historical character of christian life and thought is surely evidence that jesus christ has accomplished something real and when we get a better hold of that the problem of his person should be more within our reach the splendid phrase of paul therefore being justified by faith we have peace with god through our lord jesus christ or that of one peter in whom ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory gives us the keynote the gaiety of the early church in its union with jesus christ rings through the new testament and the christian fathers from hermas to augustine the church has come singing down the ages the victory over sin no easy thing at any time is another permanent feature of christian experience the psychological value of what dr chalmers called the expulsive power of a new affectation is not enough studied by us look at the freedom the growth the power of the christian life where do they all come from we cannot leave god out of this at any rate there they are in the christian experience and where does anything that matters flow from but from god there is again the evidence of christian achievement and it should be remarked that the christian always tells us that he himself has not the power 
that it comes from God, that he asks for it and God gives it. As for the easy explanation of all religious life by auto-suggestion, we may note that it involves a loose and unscientific use of a more or less scientific theory, never a very safe way to knowledge. In any case, it has been pointed out the word adds nothing to the number of our facts. Nor is it quite clear yet that it eliminates God from the story any more than the term digestion makes it inappropriate to say grace before a meal. All these things, peace, joy, victory, and the rest, follow from the taking away of sin and imply that it no longer stands between God and man. All this is the work of the historical Jesus. It is he who has changed the attitude of man to God, and by changing it has made it possible for God to do what he has done. If God, in Paul's phrase, hath shined in our hearts, it was Jesus who induced men to take down the shutters and open the windows. It is all associated, historically, with the ever-living Jesus Christ and with God in him. This brings us to the central question, the relation of Jesus with God, the problem of incarnation. After all that has been said, we shall not approach it a priori. We are too apt to put the incarnation, more or less in an algebraic form, x plus y equals a, where a stands for the historical Jesus Christ, and x and y respectively for God and man. But what do we mean? by x and y. Let us face our facts. What do we know of man apart from Jesus Christ? Surely it is only in him that we realise man, only in him that we grasp what human depravity really is, the real meaning and implications of human sin. It is those who have lived with Jesus Christ who are most conscious of sin. And this is no mere morbid imagination or fancy. It rests on a much deeper exploration of human nature than men in general attempt. Not until we know what he is do we see how very little we are and how far we have gone wrong. It is his power of help and sympathy that teaches us the hardness of our own hearts, our own fundamental want of sympathy. Again, until a man knows Jesus Christ, he has little chance of even getting the grandeur of which he himself is capable. A man has, as he says, done his best, for years it might be, of strenuous endeavour, and then comes the new experience of Jesus Christ, and he is lifted high above his record. He gains a new power, a new tenderness, and he does things incredible. We do not know the wrong or the right of which man is capable till we know Jesus Christ. The why of our equation, then, does not tell us very much. When it comes to the X, is it not very often a mixture, an ill-adjusted mixture, of the father of Jesus with the rather negative beyond-all-being of later Greek speculation and perhaps the judge of Roman law? The exact proportions in the mixture will vary with the thinker, but in fact, is it not true now 
that we only really know God through Jesus, for it is only in and through Jesus that we take the trouble and have the faith to explore and test God, to try experiments upon God, to know what he can do and what he will do. It is only in Jesus that the love of God, in the New Testament sense, is tenable at all. It is evanescent apart from Jesus. It rests on the assurance of his words, his work, his personality. A vague, diffused love of God for everything in general, and nothing in particular, we saw to be a quite different thing from the personal attachment with which, according to Jesus, God loves the individual man. That is the centre of the gospel. It is belief in that which has done everything in a rational world, as we saw at the beginning. And it is a most impossible belief, never long or very actively held, apart from Jesus. Only in him can we believe it. Only in him too is the new experience of God's forgiveness and redemption possible in all its fullness and sureness and power. Dieu me pardonera, said Heine, c'est mon métier. But he had not the Christian sense of what it was that God was to forgive. It is only in Jesus that we can live the real life of prayer, in the intimate way of Jesus. All this means is that we have to solve our X from Jesus, not to discover him through it. The plain fact is that we actually know Jesus a great deal better than we know our X and we know our Y, the elements from which we hope to reconstruct him. What does this mean? It means, bluntly, that we have to rethink our theories of incarnation on a posteriori lines, to begin on facts that we know, and to base ourselves on a continuous exploration and experience of Jesus Christ first. The simple, homey rule of knowing things before we talk about them holds in every other sphere of study, and it is the rule which Jesus himself inculcated. We begin then with Jesus Christ and set out to see how far he will take us. Experience comes first. Follow me, he said. He chose the twelve men, that they might be with him, and he let them find out in that great intercourse what he had for them. And from what he could give, and did give, they drew their conclusions as to who and what he is. There can be no other way of knowing him. Luther's Reformation doctrines, says Hermann in his fine book, The Communion of the Christian with God, only countenance such a confession with the deity of Christ as springs naturally to the lips of the man whom Jesus has already made blessed. Melanchthon said the same thing. This it is to know Christ, to receive his benefits not to contemplate his natures or the modes of his incarnation. Come unto me, all ye that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. End of chapter 10 End of The Jesus of History by T. R. Glover